Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, can the internet rebuild Appalachia? We asked tech writer Corey Doctorow. I'm not saying learn to code is a thing that we should tell minors, but I am saying that if you don't know how to adapt the technology that is acting on you, that it will only act on you and that you'll never be able to act on it. Also, fish fries have been a staple in Charleston, West Virginia's black community for generations. Everybody's welcome. Just don't ask for the recipe. I can't really divulge those secrets because then, you know, uh, <laughs> I had to take you hostage. And hop on board the Cass Scenic Railroad for a visit with the people who keep the steam trains running. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. One of Appalachia's most pressing problems is the flow of talented young people out of the region. And whenever folks start talking about how to attract and retain young people, technology is almost always one of the ingredients, often in the form of widespread access to high-speed internet. But the internet has its own set of problems. Corey Doctorow is one of the world's most prominent thinkers about the internet and how it's changing our lives. Doctorow's science fiction novels touch on social media culture and the ubiquity of surveillance. He's also a digital human rights activist who sees technology as a net good if people are given better control of it. Producer Bill Lynch spoke to Doctorow about what that means for Appalachia. I guess the first question is, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself strictly as as a fiction writer, or are you a lot more than that? You know, I think that um, on the one hand, I, I when I write fiction, it's because without wanting to be too grand, I, I'm trying to be an artist, right? I'm trying to make art. That's what creative writing is, is it's an art form. And so the, the job of art is to be good art, right? It's to uh, make you feel things that you wouldn't feel otherwise, to kind of uh, go to new places and so on. Now, part of the method for doing that is to also infuse it with the work that I do as an activist, in part because the uh, use of real world important issues in fiction makes the fiction seem more important. It, it makes the fiction, I think, actually more important. You know, it's 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 easy to forget just how weird fiction is, right? That that we somehow are, are tricked into feeling empathy for imaginary people doing things that never happened and caring about what happened there. It's literally could not be less consequential, right? Like there are no consequences to the things imaginary people do. That's, that's just comes with the territory there. And so one of the things that I think makes the art more urgent and more uh, artistically satisfying is the infusion of the art with the real world stuff. And at the same time, so much of the, the stuff that I work on is so abstract, right? And so difficult to wrap your head around that one of the things that fiction can do is make it more immediate. And so as an activist, you know, I'm always looking for ways to make things that are important, but are a long way off or are too complicated to readily grasp into things that feel very immediate and pressing. And, and certainly that's something that happens a lot in my fiction. Talk a little about your activism. Well, I, I grew up in progressive causes and I remain dedicated to the normal suite of progressive ca causes, uh, working on um, environmental justice and questions of uh, inequality, racial justice, uh, gender, and, and uh, other questions that are sort of in that line. But the area by which I approach this or the lens through which I see it is digital human rights. And that's the area where I've been involved for more than 20 years as a special advisor to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I really firmly believe that it's uh, very urgent that we make sure that the human rights that we enjoyed in the offline world follow us into the online world. Because I don't think that there is any way to speak of the online world uh, w without speaking of the, of the offline world, that they've become the same thing. What's one thing you'd like just the average person to understand about technology? I guess that's a good question. I guess it's that the collapse of the internet that we have today from the wild and woolly internet where disintermediation seemed uh, everywhere, people were able to have lots of technological self-determination 
and the descent into the internet we have today, which which Tom Eastman calls five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four, was not driven by any kind of technological inevitability, right? It, it wasn't like it, it had to be this way. Specific choices, policy choices made by specific named individuals whose like home addresses are not hard to find and, you know, who, who live conveniently close to a supply of pitchforks and torches, that those specific policy choices were made and they gave us the internet we have now. And it needn't be this way forever, that we can have a better internet, that it's a matter not of the great forces of history, but of human agency. Places like Appalachia, particularly West Virginia, have seen a decline in population as people, mostly young people, have left. Could technology, uh, technological advances, the a better internet, could that mitigate that? Well, you know, the Appalachia's, uh, like many other places that aren't Silicon Valley, is a place that both needs technology and isn't getting the technology it needs. The uh, lived experience of bros in a in a boardroom in silicon valley is so far off from the experience of people in appalachia or indeed in many other places in the world including in silicon valley if you're not a rich tech bro that um we really uh it's very important that we have the right and capability to modify the technology that we're expected to use you know, I'm, I'm not saying uh, learn to code is a thing that we should tell miners that have been put out of work by the energy transition or anything. But I am saying that if you don't know how to adapt the technology that is acting on you, and if you don't have the right to adapt the technology that is acting on you, that it will only act on you and that you'll never be able to act on it, that you'll never be able to adapt it to your needs and to make it do what you what you need in order to live a prosperous and better life. And so it's very important that technological self-determination be a part of the story when we talk about how we're going to use technology everywhere, but especially in places that are so far, both in terms of uh, their uh, lived experience and, and the geographical distance from Silicon Valley as Appalachia. Let's, let's say, imagine that we were able to, I guess, level the technological field across the country, right? Would that necessarily be a good thing if it happened quickly? Are there dangers to adding technology into rural places? Well, I'm not talking about making the uh, uh, about making every ex coal town into a hive of startups. I'm talking about how people who live everywhere that they live can enjoy the benefits of technology: the connection, the access to politics, to civics, to healthcare, to education, to family life, and so on. That technology at its best delivers on terms that they set for themselves. So, you know, uh, a, a lot of the rural world has very poor internet access, you know, to say nothing of, of the way that the services work, just accessing the services is very hard. And that is despite, or, or maybe because we've given so many billions of dollars to monopoly carriers to improve the access in remote places, and they've just squandered it on, either nothing or uh, broken promises about wireless or satellite or even pulling god forbid new copper wire in a world where fiber optics are around and well understood in a place called mckee in the poorest county in america on the kentucky side of appalachia they have a, a new deal descended telephone cooperative that started as an electrification cooperative and then became their telephone co-op that got some grant money and pulled fiber to every home in this extremely rural, extremely poor county. They even pulled it to uh, homes that were only accessible by rugged mountain passes. And that fiber was pulled by a mule called Old Bub, who, who pulled that fiber for them. Because, you know, pulling fiber, getting wires out to remote places, this is not a lost art, right? It's not like embalming pharaohs or something. Like, we know how to do this. We've, we've done it with the phone line that goes out to every rural place, and we can do it again with fiber. It's just a thing that the carriers don't want to do because it's more profitable for them to just continue selling the poor service to poor people that they can already provide without engaging in a lot of capital expenditure. And um, when McKee got broadband, when they got fiber, everything changed for them. They're, they were able to access a lot more jobs. Um, they were able to access each other much more readily. There was much more opportunity for things like telemedicine, where you have an under-equipped rural health system that could then access specialists who could uh, connect to patients on high-speed links. 
And then naturally when the lockdowns came and kids were expected to go to school remotely and people were expected to work remotely, all, all of a sudden that became much more important. And contrast that with places where they don't have broadband because broadband deserts are not unique to rural places. They're endemic to any poorer place. And so throughout uh, the urbanized parts of America, we have something called digital redlining that is descended from the old fashioned real estate redlining where banks would say neighborhoods in which black and racialized people live are not eligible for loans. They would draw a red line on a map. And um, those places could only be bought by uh, people who had cash to buy the whole house, to, 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 to pay um, cash down for the whole property, which were wealthy landlords who then ruthlessly exploited the people who lived in those neighborhoods. It was much more expensive to live there than in other parts of the country, but paradoxically, it's where the poorest people lived. And those places also got the worst phone service, which meant that they got the worst internet service. And during lockdown here in Los Angeles County, where I live, in the poorest parts of the county, which are also the blackest parts of the county, you had kids who had to go to Zoom school in Taco Bell parking lots because there was just not enough broadband at home, not, not just because their parents couldn't afford it, but because it wasn't even offered at speeds that would allow them to connect. And so um, access to all of the dividends of digital, all of the things that improve when you have access to digital, your education, your employment, your civics, your family life, even your romantic life, your healthcare, and, and so on. All of that are things that um, benefit people who live in rural places, as well as other poor places all across the country. And the people who design those services uh, that run on top of that, they don't know what it's like to live in those places. And they frankly don't care. So during lockdown, a lot of uh, education suppliers decided that they were going to double down on conducting high stakes tests on students, even though teachers pretty much agree that these high stakes tests are useless as a way of assessing knowledge. And because they're so high stakes, they're quite worried about cheating. And so they developed this whole range of the, uh, what are called remote invigilation tools, which are uh, webcam enabled AI facial recognition nonsense that spy on you while you sit tests and you start by swinging the camera around the room and showing the proctor on the other side or the algorithm on the other side that there's no one there. So of course you're disqualified already if you live in a one room apartment with an essential worker who works nights and sleeps through the days while you're at Zoom school. And then you have to have a pristine connection through the entirety of your test. You're also not allowed to like sort of look up into the right while you're thinking because you might be looking at notes hanging off off camera and so on. And the algorithm dings you for this. Now, this is bad enough if you're just like a privileged person like me living in a middle class detached single family home with broadband. But it's much worse if you're doing school in a Zoom school or if you're in rural Appalachia where your broadband isn't fast enough to maintain a solid video connection or indeed you don't even have a PC and you're doing this on a phone. And all of those people, they just automatically flunk the exam, right? And so it's really important that people be able to adapt the technology that they are required to use in order to live their lives and move through the world. And that is doubly important if you are uh, as unlike as possible from the, your median Silicon Valley bro as people are in Appalachia and other places. Corey, thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. That was Corey Doctorow speaking with producer Bill Lynch. Dr. O's newest book is The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. Signs for fish fries are pretty common in Charleston, West Virginia, especially in the city's black community, where they've become a tradition for generations. Folkways fellow Alicia Lee grew up in Charleston and says friends and neighbors frequently hosted fish fries, often as a way to raise money for community needs. Some people would have them for rent parties, you know, have a fish fry, they were short on their rent. Or if there was a trip that somebody needed to go on and they didn't have all the funds, they would whip up some fish, sell it outside. It was, I mean, it was nothing to, to go to um, someone's house to purchase food for whatever reason they needed it for. 
in our community i think historically the reason why fish fries are the thing is because it comes from the slave era and it was what they were allowed to do on sundays um they were allowed to go fishing and because it was free you know they didn't have to they didn't have to purchase it they would catch fish that's how they would um fraternize with each other was through cooking and preparing fish and eating it later on in the day so i think that um the tradition of having the fish fry has been embedded in you know in our community so it's something that that we were taught to do and and we do it so well that we use it as a financial means when we don't have resources to do anything else I've had a couple of fish fries and um, I use, you know, my a mixture of my grandmother's recipes and my friend's recipes to, um, to make the fish. I don't think I was taught step by step. I think you just watch or somebody is telling you what to do, like add some of this on that or sprinkle this on that or go get the fish, dip this in there, rinse the fish off. So I think you just like thrown in the mix and you actually catch on from doing it so much. People use different fish for their fish fries and a lot of times people use whitings. You usually get the fish, you let it thaw out and you um, season it. That's the main part. The main part is how you season your fish. I know we use cornmeal and then we use seasoning salt and you know you got to get the grease just right. So it has to be like sizzling and popping and then you know you dip the fish and you fry it and you can't make it too hard. Some people serve it on like croissant bread and some people serve it on regular white bread. You add hot sauce, tartar sauce, and then it's good to go. Texas Pete is the community favorite hot sauce. But sometimes you go to a fish fry and you get the off-brand kind. So I think it's whatever is there. It just makes it work. But I've seen some people reaching their their purse and pull out some um, hot sauce. I think uh, that was in one of Beyonce's songs where she said she had some uh, hot sauce in her bag. The sides are very important at a fish fry. Some people like coleslaw, but usually you get the same like type of soul food sides that you would have at, at like maybe like a Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner. Macaroni and cheese, you know, that's 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 important. Macaroni and cheese and you can get greens. And then sometimes people have fish fries with french fries. So I think that's like a very, very popular choice is fish and fries. Andre Nazario is known as one of Charleston's best fish fryers. He hosts a weekly fish fry here at the First Baptist Church downtown. He says the recipe at the church is top secret. I can't really divulge those secrets because then, you know, uh, <laughs> had to take you hostage. <laughs> but, but yes, there is a certain way that we prepare our fish. There's a certain way that we season our fish. Um, there's a certain way that we fry our fish. There's a certain temperature that we fry that. And, and there's a certain crisp that we want, a certain texture that we want uh, to our fish. The fish fries, they're held at First Baptist Church in the gymnasium. Um, you can walk in, you know, you look around, there's a couple, you might see people you may know who are waiting for their food. You place your order. What are you going to have? I'm definitely going to have some fish. Which kind? Perch. Perch. No, make it whiting, please. Whiting? It's like many family reunions. Right? So when you, we bring people together, you get to talk about it, you strike up some conversation. You hadn't seen somebody in a while, you hadn't talked to them, but then they came out to the fish fry. Y'all get to chopping it up and said, so we, got, we got to stay in base. So it's a way of, of, of touching base and staying connected with our community. I put you extra piece on there too, it's your first time. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, first time on. First time on. Sometimes they do have it where people can call their orders in and they deliver. Thank you so much for calling Fish Friday. How can I help you? Can I order two fish dinners? Absolutely. Today we have ocean perch, we have whiting, and we have catfish. Which one would you like? Whiting, please. 
Andre is the co-founder of Creating the Advantage, known as CTA. CTA is a nonprofit that works with under-resourced youth around Charleston. They support young people to excel in sports and in school. The money from these fish fries helps fund CTA's activities. We set a price for our, our fish fry, but most of the time people give a little bit more, right? Because when you offer food, <laughs> you know, that entices them or encourages them to give a little bit more. One of the main components of CTA is their basketball program. They train participants in the physical aspect of the sport, and they teach them to cope with the mental challenge of the game. The fish fries play a key role in supporting this program. With the fish fries that, that we do, um, one, uh, the proceeds go directly to the kids, right? Um, everything that we go, it helps fund training, it helps fund uh, trips, it helps pay for uniforms, it helps uh, pay for hotels for the kids, it helps feed our kids. Um, uh, it, it's an assortment of things that, that, that we do uh, with the funding from fish fries. And, and again, um, the, the best way to someone's heart sometimes is through their stomach. I think that fish fries are very important to the black community in Charleston because they allow us to become our own resource. So I think that um, fish fries are a source of mutual aid when, you know, when the funds are limited, it allows uh, the community to come together to support and, you know, just to, to show that um, what you're doing is important to them. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Alicia Lee in Charleston, West Virginia. That story was part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see photos or to listen to any of our other 140-plus Folkways stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, an interview with West Virginia author Ann Pancake. Appalachians still have a natural connection to the land. And we are told and we recognize how beautiful the place is here. But we also grown up in a culture that has told us at the same time, yeah, it's beautiful, but we have to sacrifice that in order for people to make a living. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by 16 Hands, presenting self-guided studio tours with handmade crafts in Floyd County, Virginia, October 21st and 22nd. Information at 16hands.com. West Virginia author Ann Pancake is best known for her acclaimed 2007 novel, Strange As This Weather Has Been. It follows a southern West Virginia family affected by mountaintop removal. Now, Pancake is the Appalachian Heritage Writer-in-Residence at Shepherd University. WVPB's Liz McCormick recently sat down with her to talk about what inspires her writing. First, we'll hear Pancake read a passage from Strange As This Weather Has Been. After we came back to West Virginia from North Carolina two years ago, it was all different. It was different. But I still spent a lot of time up here. I didn't hunt stuff much anymore. Some of it was gone, and even the plants that were left, the dealers wouldn't buy like they used to. So I mostly just sat in my places. Those places where, if you sat quiet, the space dropped away between you and the land. Some of them were places I discovered on my own, but others were ones where me and Grandma used to stop. She'd make me sit quiet. I learned that young, too. And when it was time to go, she'd say, Now this is just between you and me, Bant. You and me's special place. 
like the heart of the rhododendron thicket, the limbs bendy and matty and strong. It was like being inside some kind of body there. It felt animal love. The rock overhangs in the winter, how icicles would make off them great scary masses, the rocks making faces, angry and beautiful. I feel closest in spring, before the leaves came all the way out, when the mountains show their hope with little color patches, red bud and dogwood, dogwood and red bud, the roll of the words in your mouth. And if you look real close, how all the leaves are tightly curled, bulging just a little beyond bud. Leaf weight, I'd call it. And inside them, right before they bust out, you see what looks like a feather. And that was beautiful. I had asked you to pick a passage that really resonated with you about uh, what it means to be Appalachian or what it means, what Appalachian means to you. Can you elaborate a little bit more about why it was that passage you chose? I think I chose that passage because it's very complicated to be Appalachian, and there there are many hard parts about being Appalachian. There are difficult parts and sad parts, but there are also glorious parts. And I think that I wanted to read a passage today that really opened us up into the light of Appalachia, which for me, in addition to the people, is the land here. Right. And I understand environmental issues, those topics really resonate with you in your writing and have inspired a lot of your writing. Why are those issues something that compelled you to want to become a writer and write this novel? I think that one reason that West Virginia literature and Appalachian literature can be so powerful is because of the very fraught relationship we have with the land here. Because we Appalachians still have a natural connection to the land, and we are told and we recognize how beautiful the place is here, but we also grown up in a culture that has told us at the same time, yeah, it's beautiful, but we have to sacrifice that in order for people to make a living. So I think that means that Appalachians often have a pretty strong love-hate relationship with the place and a joy and grief relationship, so it's paradoxical. So you wrote this novel in 2007, and we're in a different political climate right now in 2023. At the time you wrote the novel versus to now, has anything changed, improved, gotten worse in your own observations and opinions? Yeah, it's a very different time now. When I was researching and writing the novel, it was in the early 2000s. There was a very strong anti-mountaintop removal movement, and we believed that we'd make a difference, that we would actually get mountaintop removal stopped. And in some places we did, and there were there was progress that was made. And there's a poem by Mark Harshman, which I adore, called What I've Seen. And in one stanza, he names several of those activists, like Judy Bonds, like, like Larry Gibson. And then he's, I'm going to misquote him, but he says, more failures than victories, but as long as their memories are entwined with ours, there's kindling. So at this point in West Virginia history and in the situation in the nation, which is which has gotten so much more divided and more violent and more authoritarian since I was writing this book, where I got to go now with my writing is into a place where I and others can start imagining and putting into action a different vision for how we relate to the natural world. Can you talk a little bit more about how you see the weight of your name and your work bringing that vision to a reality? I don't have a solution for the economics and politics in West Virginia. What I want to explore in the next book is in three parts. And the first part is what happens to people's minds and their hearts and their souls when they go through the destruction of their home, the natural world around them. And I'm drawing partly on the work of philosopher Glenn Albrecht. He's an Australian eco-psychologist who coined the term solastalgia, which he developed after doing research on people around uh, open pit mines in Australia. And on solastalgia's experience of watching your home place be destroyed, watching what your, your own place being destroyed. Um, and what that does to you psychologically. 
And there has been research by Michael Hendricks in southern West Virginia about the mental health of those people who've had to live around those mines. So proceeding from that, in this book that I'm working on now, I want to talk about the, how mental health, mental illness, and addiction may be related to a lot of the devastation that we've had here. And then importantly, towards the end of a book, how do we transcend that? How do we live with that? And so it's less a vision about the economics or politics of West Virginia, but the soul of West Virginia, the psychology of West Virginia, and how we survive, how we, are, we remain human beings. Because that's one thing that Appalachia and West Virginia, we still have very humane qualities. I've lived a lot of places, and this for me, of course it's my home, but is one of the places where there's still so much humanity. That was West Virginia author Anne Pancake, speaking with Liz McCormick. To hear a longer version, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Invasive insects are killing trees and plants and spreading across the U.S. Adelgids are attacking hemlock trees. Spotted lanternfly are going after grapes. And emerald ash borers are killing ash trees. Now, scientists are combating the spread of harmful insects with a new method other insects. To learn more, Roxy Todd visited Grayson Highlands State Park in Virginia. It's home to some of the state's most rare and unique forest ecosystems. It feels like an entirely different world up on this mountain. Yellow wildflowers cover the fields at Grayson Highlands State Park. We're within view of Mount Rogers, Virginia's highest peak. I do come here for just hiking. Lee Diggs is from Damascus, about 30 miles away. This is her favorite state park in Virginia. There's some really pretty places, and they're all different, so that's part of what draws me here. Not just the ponies, they're kind of cool too. But Yes, she said ponies, as in wild ponies. They actually help manage the grassy, bald areas of the park. Dotting the trails are reminders not to approach the ponies. There have been incidents of visitors getting too close, or trying to feed them, or take selfies. But the ponies aren't why I'm here. I came to witness some of the state's last remaining large ash trees. Park staff are trying to preserve them from an invasive insect from Asia called the emerald ash borer. Should we go into the woods? Yeah, let's go down in the woods. Jordan Blevins works for Virginia State Parks, and his job is to protect native trees and plants. He says this forest has some of the last remaining healthy white ash trees he's seen. Last year, they all looked healthy. This year is the first year that I've seen a, a pretty large decline in the white ash population. Plants like goldenrod, aster, and elderberry bushes dot the edge of the trail. Sixty years ago, this land was all private farmland. Today, this forest has grown up with trees, but nearly all the ash trees are sick or have already died. So you see right here is a white ash tree right here, and you can see it's already dead. Emerald ash borers were first identified in the United States in 2002. A little green emerald colored insect that lays its eggs on the outside of ash bark. When the eggs hatch, the larvae bore through the bark and start eating the tree's nutrients from the inside. But a few years ago, scientists discovered several species of parasitic wasps that eat ash borers in Asia. After they made sure they wouldn't do harm to native insects, they released them in this forest and throughout several other sites in Virginia. The wasps help reduce the number of trees that die. And the wasps don't look like an actual wasp. They look like almost like a mosquito. They're really small, really cool looking. In the last few years, scientists have released 8 million parasitic wasps that eat ash borers, according to the United States Department of Agriculture. They're now in 30 states. And if the wasps reproduce, they could continue to protect ash trees for years. But the wasps alone won't kill off ash borers. Likely nothing can stop their spread at this point. Insecticide has also kept some trees alive. Today, Blevins is treating trees with it. He holds a plastic caboodle with blue liquid and other gear for injecting the ash trees. Blevins says it works best as a preventative, kind of like flea medicine for your pet. He drills holes into the roots of a large ash tree and plugs it with the insecticide. We're trying to conserve at least save a few ash. We can't save all of them, but we'll save as many as we can, and especially along the trail to where visitors can maybe sometime in the future see a big ash. 
about an inch and a half. Levin says he's hopeful that in a hundred years, visitors to this park will be able to see a handful of large ash trees here, along with the other plants that make up a healthy forest. In Grayson Highland State Park, I'm Roxy Todd. The change of seasons brings the return of dam releases on West Virginia's Golly River, which means it's high time for whitewater rafting and kayaking. The river's enjoyed year-round, but a lot of people say the best time to hit the water is from mid-September until late October. WVPB's Brianna Heaney is a former river guide. She has this story about Golly season. As summer winds down, tens of thousands of whitewater rafters and kayakers from all over the country begin their migration to West Virginia. They are here for the Gauley River, which normally only has navigable flows during the fall. Those flows are part of a planned effort of dam releases in the fall to draw down Summersville Lake and support whitewater rafting and kayaking. Companies offer guided trips down the river for customers without expert whitewater skills. But most of the boats on the river are private boaters or individuals who own their own equipment and have the professional knowledge and abilities to navigate the river. The National Park Service says this year they have seen more private boaters than ever. Matt McQueen is a park ranger and kayaker. The Golly runs two to four days a week during its six-week season, and on those days, he is on the river with other rangers. He says during Golly season, the brown, green, and orange hues of the landscape are interrupted with the bright colors of the boats and rafters headed downstream from where the river begins at Summersville Dam. A lot of different colors, a lot of plastic on the water, uh, a lot of smiling faces, a lot of glitter, a lot of lipstick. There's definitely a whole culture involved in the whitewater industry that is kind of unique for sure. And those colorful, glittery private boaters gather on this river from all over the country. I had never spoken about West Virginia in my life until the golly was brought up. That's Melissa Clivia Wintrup. She started guiding this summer in her home state of Montana. A lot of our senior guides had spoken a big big game about the Golly. I had heard this name kind of floating around the parking lot since I had gotten there. Kevin Fitch agrees. He has been guiding for nine years in Colorado and has come to West Virginia for the past few falls to work and play on the river. People traveled to West Virginia from Alaska, California, Oregon, Washington. So it ends up being a, a kind of a reunion for a lot of folks, even if they haven't been to the Gali in seasons past. The rafters say they come out here because of how massive the whitewater is. The Whitewater Guidebook says the Gali is the best river for a single-day trip. And the Gali usually finds itself in the top five of any other national or international best whitewater list. That's because it has many of the qualities that create big whitewater. A steep descent, lots of water, and lots of obstacles. During the release, it runs at a minimum of 2,800 CFS, or cubic feet per second, which is about the size of a basketball. and If there was a line going across the river, every second, 2,800 basketballs worth of water cross that line. Because of the style of the golly, 2,800 ends up being a a large amount of water for relatively a small river. And Fitch says the combination of those features make the waves reminiscent of a big swell on the ocean. You're looking 10 feet above you at the crest of the wave and your only perspective, your only visual at that point is the water around you and the trees that can poke out above them. Those waves, rocks and water all factor into a white water classification system that rates rapids on a level of difficulty between one and six. Park Ranger McQueen says that you can think of class one as a choppy day on a lake and class six as a nearly impossible run. Class five is more of an expert level where significant hazards are present. The route's not always easily apparent. There is some solid navigational skills that need to be required to get through. Uh, Strength for sure. The Golly has five class five rapids, Iron Curtain, Pillow, Lost Paddle, Iron Ring, and Sweets Falls, as well as many other smaller rapids. In those rapids, the chances of ending up in the water are higher, says McQueen. 
He lives by the water mantra that a boater is always just in between swims. No matter how good or skilled or experienced you are as a whitewater paddler, eventually something's going to happen that you're going to find yourself in the water taking a swim. That's why the Park Service is out there. And if you have made a small or big mistake, you might hear this. Cheers generally mean that uh, you have messed up your line. Cheers generally mean that somebody is going in the water. That's Fitch again. He says those cheers are part of the rowdy and colorful Gali River culture. But he says... What is absolutely epic about those times is everyone will cheer as things are going wrong. But if things end up going weird, um, the cheers immediately stop and the concern for the individual and getting them out of the scenario that they're in becomes paramount. Um, and that is one of the aspects of phenomenal community here. The Gali River usually gets 20 to 30,000 visitors each season. Although rangers are predicting that the number is this year could be their highest yet. This year, the season started September 8th and will end on October 22nd. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney on the Gali River. I live right off the Blue Ridge Parkway, and I can always tell by the rumble of motorcycles that the leaves are starting to turn. This is the most popular time of year for a lot of tourist destinations in Appalachia. In West Virginia, visitors flock to view fall foliage by taking a ride on the Cass Scenic Railroad. In 2022, Folkways reporter Lauren Griffin visited Pocahontas County and met some of the folks who keep the Cass steam trains running, including senior railroad employee Rex Castle, who passed away during the making of this story. His passing emphasizes the importance of generational learning and sharing what you know. Here's Lauren's story. This is the sound of a 1920s Heisler No. 6 locomotive known here as the Durbin Rocket. Eager tourists lean out from the open-air coaches as the train departs and begins its journey into the mountains of Pocahontas County, West Virginia. It's a hot summer day, but not hot enough to keep Kentaro Okuni and his family away. Uh, because uh, my son uh, loves, uh, uh, especially for the steam train. Yeah, so this is the uh, second, second trip <laughs> to visit uh, here. Okuni traveled from his home in the suburbs of D.C. with his wife Hiroi and his young son, Takenojo, to see the impressive Shea steam trains run. Many visitors I spoke to on the train were not from West Virginia. In the years before the pandemic, it was fairly common for folks to travel to the small town of Cass from all over the world. Riding the train at Cass is a niche experience, one that wouldn't be possible without a committed group of experts who fix and operate the trains. One of those people is Rex Castle. He's the shop foreman down at the cast repair shop. Working on these old shades is something that's unique and different from any job you ever had. Castle has been working on these locomotives for about 30 years. Like a lot of other engineers, hostlers, and machinists, Castle is the third generation in his family to work on these locomotives. Well, my granddad worked for the CNO. He walked me on the railroad all the time. He would show me things, of course, I was a a boy and, you know, not understanding, but I did pay attention. But uh, then my dad worked here. He and, uh, he got me and he'd bring me up here as a, a little kid. He hustled. I would lay in the floor of the locomotive and he would cover me up with an old greasy rag that was in there. <laughs> and I'll never forget, you know, I'd wake up and he'd be shoving coal over top of me into the fire box. And then I'd go right back to sleep. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's I've been around them all my biggest part of my life. The other guys in the crew refer to Castle as a wealth of knowledge due to his experience in the field. He's also approaching retirement. Yeah, as of um, of the crew we have right now, I'm probably the oldest that's left here. The old timer, as they would call. <laughs> like I say, we've got some younger guys that's coming up. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to be here forever, I'm hopefully two more years, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, I want to show them what I know, what the, uh, what I called the old timers before me handed down to me. So. That's one of the unique and challenging aspects of the job. The locomotives running out of cast were built in the early 1900s, all the way to the 1950s and 60s. The knowledge on how to repair and run these locomotives is specific to the local terrain 
and mostly handed down through hands-on learning. When you run up here on our railroad, we probably average six to eight percent grades on all the way 11 miles to Ball Knob and back. It's the only way you can learn how to do it is get in them with the engineer to show you and, and uh, to learn it hands-on. <laughs> There's no book out there that will tell you how to do this. One of the members of the younger generation is Dervin Lambert. Like Castle, Lambert grew up around these trains. His grandfather also worked at the cast repair shop as a machinist. I started when I was 15 years old in the shop, and then I'm 33 now. So, And I've left for a couple years, but I always seem to come back. I want to live here. This is where I choose to live. So, I, you know, this is the job that I enjoy doing for the area. So I'm hands-on, and I don't mind getting dirty and, you know, hot. It's aggravating sometimes. But at the end of the day, it's a good job. So, The job is not just running tourist trains. It's also running freight. The freight trains haul a variety of goods with modern locomotives. But it's the antique steam trains that require more effort. And the job is not for everyone, even people who thought they wanted to work on trains. Rex Castle has seen his fair share of people come and go. I didn't like the, the dirt, the soot, the smoke, uh, the oil. You're gonna, your clothes is going to stay stained. Uh, you go out here, you're black some, most days. I mean, it's, it's, it's a dirty job. It's, it's not a job for somebody who wants to stay clean. And they're hot. They are terrible hot. The hot, sunny season, I mean, like today where it's probably 80 out there, these locomotives probably average anywhere between 130, 150 degrees. It's hot enough on the engineer sitting there. He can't get out of it. And the fireman, he's shoveling for a ton of coal So in that heat. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard job. It's important for the railroad company to find committed folks who can handle the dirty, hot work. But the population here is shrinking, and the field is primarily dominated by workers who are men. So the railroad has expanded their employee search pool beyond the region. One person who doesn't mind the rough conditions is Matthew Hooser. He's one of the newest recruits, along with his friend Brown Culp. Well, long story short, uh, both of us volunteered at the North Carolina Transportation Museum in Spencer, North Carolina. That's both how we both kind of got started into this career, I guess you could say. And one year, we decided to kind of make a father-son trip. Uh, his dad and my dad, we paired together, came up and rode cast a couple years ago. We really enjoyed it. Ever since then, I guess you could say we kind of fantasized on, hey, it'd be great to kind of work up there. It seems like, you know, all the steam engines and everything like that, that'd be take our passion and take it to another level. Boozer is the engineer for the morning ride on the Durbin rocket. As an engineer, Hooser is responsible for running the engine, keeping it lubricated, watching the track for obstacles, coordinating with the train conductor, and helping the trip run as smoothly as possible. His friend Culp is a fireman, which means he fuels and maintains the fire in the locomotive during trips. People like Hooser and Culp are important for the future of the trains in Cass. Hopefully, you know, the younger generation we've got coming up here will keep them going for generations to come if we can still afford to run them. <laughs> it's, it's getting the words starting to really be hard. With industry costs rising, CAS employees worry that increasing ticket prices in response might push tourists away. John Smith is the CEO and founder of the Durban and Greenbrier Valley Railroad. He controls the finances. Our ticket price is still probably on the lower end of some of the other railroads around the country. But we're not in the middle of a um, uh, metropolitan area or near one even. So everybody, everybody comes here has to drive here to get here. So it's kind of an expensive thing to do more than just uh, drive 20 miles to go to a zoo or something. The biggest question mark is, are we going to have the base of customers that we had before? But there's an element to cast that keeps drawing folks back, whether to work or to visit. Just riding a train, I don't know what it is, especially if you're in like one of those air-conditioned cars whipping down the tracks over on the central. It's pretty cool. Um, even the ride here, with all the noise and everything else, it, it's like almost um, musical. It has, a, it has that kind of uh, effect on you. So when you hear a, a steam whistle a mile away, there's no one wouldn't say that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Which is why for now, the trains are still running and drawing people to Cass, West Virginia.
With Inside Appalachia, I'm Lauren Griffin. To see photos of the antique trains at Cass and the crew who keep them running, visit our website, wvpublic.org. And thanks to Walter Scriptunas for help with that story. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the company stores, Sierra Farrell, Jerry Melns, The Carpenter Ants, and Jerry Douglas. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Allo is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.